Good morning, everyone from the East Coast of the United States. This is Danny Haifong, and you're tuning in to another episode of The Left Lens. Uh, we have a very special guest today. Before I get to him, I want to first just uh, let you know that while you are here, uh, please do like this stream. If you're not subscribed to the channel yet, please do so. Uh, be sure to share this stream around. And of course, the best way to help fight demonetization, because it just so happens that a lot of videos, if not the vast majority of videos that mention the word Russia, uh, get demonetized. Uh, you can become a member at patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. But without further ado, I want to get to our guest today. So please do keep liking the stream and sharing it around. Uh, he is Pepe Escobar, an independent a journalist and analyst. Hello, Pepe. I've been reading your work for a while. It is really good to have you here today. Thanks, Danny. It's a great pleasure to be with you with the, and with the East Coast and West Coast and <laughs> everywhere else. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, uh, I know you're out in Paris and we are, are going to keep this tight. I'll be on for 90 minutes, but Pepe will be here with me for uh, about an hour. And so we should definitely get started. So Pepe, first off, with Russia's military operation in Ukraine, there's been a lot of censorship uh, among Western media, social media, and you have fallen victim to this, if we should say so. You were suspended from Twitter. What happened? People have been asking about it. I, I you know, what, what's going on? Yeah, uh, it was on the same week as Scott Ritter myself uh abs military channel and several others we were all canceled the same week basically it was about mario paul and basically it was because we were pointing at, at the work of the Azov battalion and the neo-nazi gang in kiev in mario paul that's it in fact the, the twitter that got me canceled was uh, uh, a quote which i uh uh, spun uh, sarcastically of Bazurin, the head of the Donetsk People's Republic. Uh, we were, they were considering how they were going to extricate the the Nazi gang at the time. Uh, they saw were about three thousand who were uh, uh, holed up in the bowels of the Azovstal steelworks. And uh, at the time, the number one possibility was to use the Schmel flamethrower which is not exactly what you see in a Tarantino movie. It's much, much more lethal. It's not like the Buratino, which is a, a, a multi, multi-purpose uh, flamethrower. It's a one, uh, one flamethrower at a time, but absolutely devastating. And Basudin was saying, look, this is probably what's going to happen next. And that tweet got me canceled. Of course, we had, uh, all of us, we had... Uh, warnings before the, that famous jail for one day seven days whatever and a lot of people say look uh, we we know you. you you are on their radar because unlike most people i was on twitter for only less than seven months and my account grew too fast with operation z and uh, some friends in california in fact they told look you are on their radar and scott was on their radar as well because his account was also growing too fast so you know it was inevitable no surprises at all. It's a techno-feudalism in action. And I had been canceled from Facebook a year ago. So, you know, <laughs> the pattern continues. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, 
this channel has definitely received a lot of uh, demonetization. You know, this is just a pattern, right? With anyone who's trying to get the word out about what's going on, not just on, not just on the ground, but also the bigger picture, the which bigger is picture. something that sure. you uh, focus on, uh, I think, uh, so uh, so astutely. So, I, you know, let's get to it. Recently, you've been writing uh, in the cradle about a new monetary system that's in birth. Uh, the Euro Eurasian Economic Union is spearheading this. They're in discussions. You just uh, interviewed a prominent economist who used to work um, in the Russian government uh, from, 20, I think, from 2012 to 2019, and now yes. Sergei Lavyev, and now he is uh, the appointee uh, at the EAEU. Oh, could you tell us about this monetary system? Because this is not being talked about in the Western media. And, and the censorship not. definitely helps fuel what I think is a profound ignorance of the implications for how this military operation that Russia is waging, how the response by the West has facilitated, I think, um, just an unprecedented trend toward de-dollarization. I think many of us thought would happen a lot more slowly. Yes, Absolutely right, Danny. And uh, it, it was quite interesting because this interview with Glaziev was republished by a lot of uh, American websites. I, I think on Zero Hedge, it, it went uh, over 100,000 views, maybe even more than that, which is, which is quite something because Glaziev is a persona non grata and an anathema for 99% uh, of Americans uh, involved in uh, economy and finance. Uh, well, uh, try, trying to sum it all up, he is, uh, Glaziev is in charge of the, the mechanism at the Eurasian Economic Union that uh, uh, it, it's a sort of equivalent of the European Commission in, uh, in Brussels. They write policy and they implement policy. And this policy is at the highest level because uh, we don't have, of course, uh, a direct evidence, but it, it must have come directly from Putin and Patrushev, the National Security Council. Okay, let's, uh, let's uh, um, go on, uh, if we're driving a Maserati, let's go on fifth or sixth, <laughs> you know. And uh, finally organize uh, at least the liniments of uh, a new economic and monetary system, which will be based probably, according to Glaziev himself, a basket of currencies and gold as well, and energy. And the fact that Russia is linking ruble to energy, ruble to gas, and soon ruble to oil as well, and ruble to minerals. So when you have this connection of a immensely wealthy uh, resource-based economy, which is the case of Russia, and not a, uh, when, when we when you think of uh, everything that has not been exploited yet across Siberia, for instance, it, it's it's nearly infinite. You know? And you have a resource-based currency based on actual commodities of very, very high value. And you mixed with an economy, the Chinese economy, which, which product, actually pro, pro, produces stuff that is distributed and sold and consumed all over the world. Right. And you don't have an economy based on helicopter money. 
like our friends in the Fed or the ACB uh, in Frankfurt, it, it's a game. It's a totally game changer. Absolutely. Of course, the implementation is going to be a nightmare. It's going to be very complicated and long term. We are at a very initial stage, which is Glaziev coordinating at the heart of the Asia Economic Union, uh, Russia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, uh, Armenia, and <laughs> which, is, which, is, which is the fifth one. Okay, I, I will remember. <laughs> Kyrgyzstan. Yeah, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Armenia, Belarus, and Russia. Five members with some observers, including, very interestingly, uh, Vietnam. It's an observer of the Eurasia Economic Union. The Indonesia is interested. Uh, this could extend to other uh, Eurasian players that are already part of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. So what we could see, more or less, is that as soon as they have, more or less, the the framework of the new system. It's going to start being implemented by Russia and China, with Kazakhstan as a very important player as well. It will extend to other important players across Eurasia. Uh, we, we could think uh, medium term, even India and Pakistan, which are members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and certainly Iran, because these uh, monetary economic conversations between Russia and China involve Iran, at least for the past year or so. Very, very close conversations. So uh, this will be the embryo of uh, exactly uh, the opposite of uh, Zoltan Poznar, which is very well known in the US, has been talking about uh, Bretton Woods 3. This would be post, post Bretton Woods 3 or the anti Bretton Woods 3. Nothing to do with Bretton Woods. It's Bretton Woods turned upside down and based essentially on the ruble, the yuan, and all of that backed by gold and commodities. So that's why this is a game-changing proposition, of course. Uh, it was interesting because uh, among the comments uh, in, the sec in sections of, uh, of American websites that republished the article, there were some very knowledgeable comments, comments from people who are specialists from financial markets and economists, including including Michael Hudson. One of the questions that I posed to Blasiev, I asked Michael. So and Michael is very much interested in all that. So there is a, already, a, let's say, a, 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 sm a small uh, a network of, of people, not only economists, across the NATO stand sphere, no? That is very much interested, and there's gonna—I'm sure there are gonna be discussions between them and some people in the Eurasian Economic Union and with Glaziev himself. Like Glaziev took like uh, over three weeks to answer the questions, and, and uh, our our uh, messenger—he was saying, "Look, I—he knows he's gonna do it, but he, he hasn't had—he he hasn't had time to do anything." for the past few months, two or three months, in fact. He is at the eye of the volcano, totally. And that's why this is so important. And the Chinese, of course, because the Chinese are always very discreet and circumspect, especially when uh, we, are, we are dealing with um, a development that uh, is going to be taken by the American establishment as uh, an economic declaration of war, which it is in a financial declaration of war, which it is, in fact. So for the moment, this is being kept in a very hush-hush uh, manner, you know. 
as soon as they have a draft, there may be an announcement, probably by the by the Eurasian Economic Union itself, with uh, Russia and Chinese uh, backup. But this is something for the next few months. Let's put it this way. But this uh, this is essential because considering uh, the response that the Russians were expecting from the letters that they sent, especially to Washington and also to Brussels in December, uh, talking about indivisibility of security, that they needed a new uh, security arrangement uh, all over Europe and including Russia, the fact that Ukraine had to be neutral, a sort of Finlandization of uh, Ukraine, and it could never become a NATO member. And the fact that there were non-response responses from Washington and from Brussels. This precipitated the whole thing. So the, the monetary economic angle of the whole equation was already being discussed for a long time. And the prelude for all that is a discussion that started with the BRICS in the mm. 2000s already. So this started when the, Putin, Hu Jintao, and Lula from Brazil started to, in the BRICS uh, uh, discussions, okay, how are we going to bypass the dollar long term? So this is a, a conversation that's been going on at the highest level for at least 15 years, you know. And now we are seeing the first, soon we're going to be seeing the first actual fruits of the of the whole thing. It's, it, it, it's really quite something. In fact, the, the, and I, I hope that I, I'll be able to have... A, uh, subsequent interviews with Glaziev. He agreed to that, in fact, mm. by keeping us updated on where the whole thing is going. Right. That's super important, especially since we're likely not going to hear about this in, in the Western no. media at all. <laughs> Definitely, Definitely <laughs> not. We'll feel the effects of it because uh, the West will certainly kick and scream policy-wise, uh, but we won't hear the real story about what's going on. You've been covering the the development of pipelines and these projects of integration. How do these fit in? Uh, for example, uh, I recently covered the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. Of course. Part yeah. of the Belt and Road Initiative. I, it, there's just so many just active projects happening as we speak that are being bankrolled and funded and supported by China across the regions, right, that we are, are speaking of, uh, including yes. Russia. So. How does this play into the de-dollarization, this development of infrastructure? What's the relationship here? Because I think um, uh, it could be easy to separate the two if we don't talk about them together. So, what would you what would you say to those who might have that question? Wow, uh, this is I, I've, I've been doing this for Danny uh, since the early two thousands. Can you believe that? When I, when I wrote my first pipeline pipeline is done column, that was twenty years ago over 20 years ago, in fact. At the time, I was uh, concentrating on the Baku-Tbilisi-Chehan pipeline that the, the Clinton administration, in fact, they sent as big Brzezinski to Baku to clinch that deal specifically to bypass both Russia and China. So, uh, and this was uh, already in the late 90s, called my attention. I said, okay, this is, this is a mega developing story for the next decades, you know. And it became one of my uh, focus of interest, side by side with the war on terror. So I was covering the war on terror on, on the ground all the time, but also pipeline is done. And even in following some of the pipelines, you know, I actually followed some of the 
Baku, the BTC Baku Tbilisi Chehan pipeline. Uh, and this was being, uh, and they started to develop in the mid 2000s, uh, directly linked to the strategy of the, the Cheney administration. We cannot call it Dubia, right? We call it Cheney administration because they were sending basically emissaries to Central Asia practically uh, every month or every two months to discuss how the Americans could uh, interfere, profit, derail, or, or even uh, organize the, the trajectory of uh, certain pipelines, especially from gas from Turkmenistan, for instance. And they were dealing with Kazakhstan, where the Americans were already present, Turkmenistan, uh, and Azerbaijan, which is, which is basically BP territory. You know, so uh, this was very, very interesting because the whole thing started to change in the 2010s when the Americans first came with. Uh, I wonder if people in the US still remember that Hillary Clinton proposed the Silk Road. Do you remember this, Danny? No, I don't. I exactly. remember she was she was. Yeah, there was like this balance between this militarization policy versus exactly. the economic coordination and then. The TPP was pronounced a little while a little after that, but exactly. anyway, even before that. So that that was part of the pivot to Asia uh, for the first Obama administration, and obviously this idea came uh, out of the State Department. Hillary said it was her idea. It was actually it was not her idea. It was basically Kurt Campbell's idea, and it was a pivot to Asia using a Silk Road. And the focus of the Silk Road will be occupied Afghanistan, which is something completely absurd for all, for all the neighbors, the Central Asians, not to mention Russia and China. And then when the Chinese launched the, the new Silk Roads in 2013, nine years ago, first in uh, Astana, now Nur Sultan, and then in Jakarta, the Maritime Silk Road, the whole thing changed completely because the focus for the Chinese was the Chinese building or helping to, to build pipelines for their energy necessities. They had already did that with Turkmenistan. So while the Chini administration was trying to seduce uh, uh, Turkmenistan, the Chinese went there and in one round of negotiations, they say, okay, we build your pipeline, we pay for it, and then you sell our gas to us. Clinched completely. You know, something that the Europeans, for instance, all, all these debates that you hear in Brussels about European energy policy, they never managed to do something like this. The Chinese did. The Americans couldn't do it. The Europeans couldn't do it. The Chinese did it. So then in the 2010s, the whole thing went turbo with pipelines, uh, uh, including uh, the Central Asians from the Caspian, but also from Russia. And that's where we get power of Siberia 1 and power of Siberia 2. Power of Siberia 1 already working. Power of Siberia 2 is going to be ready soon. They're going to build an interconnector. And uh, uh, that explains, for instance, why for Gazprom, Nord Stream 2, the loss of Nord Stream 2, orchestrated by the Biden administration, doesn't matter. First of all, because they already paid the costs of power of uh, of Nord Stream two, yep. Gazprom is not losing. Not only Gazprom is not losing money; they are making a lot of money because they continue to sell gas to Western customers. 
is, is what we're seeing right now. They have to. Now they are falling in line. And the ones who have a little bit of foresight, okay, we're going to open uh, accounts at Gazprom Bank in Moscow. We're going to deposit our euros. They're going to transfer into rubles. We're going to pay for our gas. And we're going to keep getting our gas. Apart from stupid uh, players like Poland and Bulgaria, which let, let's see what they do next. The Germans, sooner or later, I, I would say in the next few days, the Germans are going to announce that they are going to pay uh, gas with rubles. It's uh, inevitable. Uh, Hungary is going to do it. Austria is going to do it. Other players are going to do it. So Germany, 49% of German gas comes from Russia. They need it. Otherwise, there was a, an ultimatum by captains of industry in Germany to Schultz, Chancellor Schultz, look, hmm. get your act together because you will be responsible for the destruction of German industry if you cut off our, our gas supplies from Russia. So we're going to have a major development soon. And it will be an extra victory for Operation Z, you know. But all that, uh, uh, Danny, just to give you the idea of uh, how the whole pipeline situation in Central Asia and North Asia and Siberia changed over this, these past 15 years. And the winners in terms of getting the energy are the Chinese, of course, because mm -hmm. no matter what, they secured Power Siberia 1 and 2. The losers, if they keep coming with these absolutely ridiculous sanctions package that hurt themselves more than Russia are going to be the Europeans. And of course, the Americans are going to win anyway, uh, selling whatever they have of LNG to the Europeans. Uh, LNG that the Americans don't have, uh, transported by cargos that they don't have to terminals in Europe that have not been built yet. <laughs> so so it's, it's a bit absurd situation, isn't it? But uh, uh, like you said, you don't you don't see that kind of discussion in American media anywhere. No, <laughs> no. And, you know, you've been writing about Russia in, in the situation uh, in terms of just the impact of the sanctions and these wet policies, this economic warfare. And uh, you make a really great point about how what is hurting Russia the most. And, and I think this pipeline conversation about just how the global South, how this region, Eurasia is being interconnected in this way. You make a really great point that it really has been the plundering of Russia's assets abroad and yes. how, and the gold that has been the biggest uh, point of damage for Russia because Russia is not necessarily isolated economically in other respects. Could you talk about, Russia as not being isolated because here in the West, especially the United States and the Biden administration, they talk about Russia as being alone, right? The world is not with Russia. <laughs> the world, of course, is just uh, the, the EU or select yeah, EU exactly. countries. But uh, could you talk about Russia not being isolated here? Because, of course, there's been this contradictory phenomena of the ruble increasing in value and the Europe continuing to import gas out of necessity, as you said. Could you talk about Russia's uh, la isolation or lack thereof? Yes, uh, Russia is isolated by 12% of the world's population, essentially. Uh, the absolute majority of the global, practically the whole global south, and we cannot consider Singapore global south because Singapore is a very wealthy enclave in Southeast Asia. 
and uh, Northeast Asia, Japan and South Korea, which are basically American colonies. If you, if you do not consider these three in Asia, the whole global South is either not demonizing Russia, not sanctioning Russia, or both. And uh, this includes, of course, the BRICS countries, very, very important, which, uh, which are the basis of uh, a concept that has already been uh, established in, in, at the Valdai Club, in fact, in, in Moscow, and is going to be expanded by the BRICS leadership soon, BRICS Plus. So soon we're going to have BRICS Plus, uh, probably members like South Korea, Indonesia, Turkey, Nigeria, Senegal, Argentina, you know, they are candidates, uh, an expanded BRICS, in fact, which is a sort of a, a G20 without the G7. Basically, that's what BRICS Plus is going to be. Huh? Um, and for instance, the, the past three months I was in Turkey. Turkey is a member of NATO, which should, should uh, in theory, be demonizing Russia to death on the country. And uh, tur the Turkish diplomacy, which is, I learned a lot these past three months, in fact, they are, uh, it's not Erdogan that controls everything. Uh, the Minister of Foreign Affairs in Turkey, they have some very, very capable diplomats. They are, uh, their tripwire act is very well calibrated. They hosted uh, one of the uh, rounds of negotiations in Istanbul between Russia and Ukraine, for that matter. Uh, it was so successful that it was the first time that Russia and Ukraine actually agreed on something. And guess what happened immediately afterwards? The Americans intervened and they simply destroyed any po the possibility of any further negotiations. So in Russia, it's interesting. I, I talked to, to, to a lot of, of people of the Russian, of the Turkish establishment or diplomatic establishment of academics that they were, of course, we simply cannot afford to uh, demonize or isolate Russia because we depend on them on so many levels. Uh, gas, Turk stream, uh, uh, building of nuclear plants, uh, tourism, you know, you name it. So, uh, so, uh, the way they are playing it is a lesson for the West and for the other uh, NATO members, of course. And not to mention that uh, to the right of, uh, uh, of uh, Turkey on the map, if we go to Iran, Central Asia, etc., everybody is discreetly understanding the Russian position, even if not outright speaking in favor of it, and certainly not demonizing and continuing to do business with Russia. And in the case of India, for instance, is uh, the Americans were absolutely horrified because not only India continues to buy uh, Russian energy and will keep buying even more Russian energy, even if it's directly from Russia or relabeled what we call the, the, the Latvian mix <laughs> you know, it's 49% uh, Russian oil, 51% Latvian or other destinations mixed in mm. Latvia, Latvia and then sold all over. But they're going to be paying it in their own in their own currency, the real and with a real and ruble mechanism as well. From the point of view of, uh, of the American establishment, this is absolutely horrifying. It's happening. And it's one of the most important BRICS uh, nations as well. So uh, uh, Russia is definitely not uh, isolated by all means across Eurasia, across Africa, all over Africa, and all over Latin America as well. Even Brazil, yeah. 
with a right-wing military dictatorship uh, in, still in place. Mm -hmm. The Brazilians know that the Russians are, first of all, they are a member of BRICS. Second, uh, exchanges with Russia, trade exchanges have been going up all the time. There's a lot of Russian investment in Brazil. And obviously, they cannot alienate Russia on an international diplomatic level. So they, they have been playing the, the neutrality card very skillfully. I think it's the only foreign policy victory between commas of this current administration in Brazil. So uh, to, to, to sum it all up, Russia is isolated by NATO stun. That's yeah. it. <laughs> right, right. And it's such a small portion of the population. And also... That's their economies are in trouble. I mean, that's because they're in trouble. Exactly. <laughs> you, you've been talking about this, and maybe you can elaborate too about you know Europe is committing real economic suicide here, and it's political suicide as well because what it ends up doing, and it's happening here in the United States. I mean, the price, uh, inflation, price hike, shortages; those were already bad for many different reasons: yes. corruption and pandemic, and all of that. Many different reasons. But it was almost like pouring gasoline on a house that was already on fire. And so now it's coming back uh, tenfold. And all they have to say, all the elites in the, in the media and the celebrities even, right? Because in the U.S. you have to have celebrities talking about politics. <laughs> uh, but they're talking about you need to pay this tax this uh putin tax hike for ukrainians right this is for uh this is for ukrainians pay this extra money uh, while ordinary people are wondering hey do am i gonna go homeless or not because i exactly. can't get to work right like, like, like that's that's what's happening so what is happening with europe like how how is this suicide for europe in 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 the total in respect because uh, I think there are many components to this. I wonder if you could if you could help our yes, viewers understand. There, there are, Danny. There are many components, but uh, I, I would say the most toxic of these components is the the way the U European Union is run and the way the European Commission, which sets policy in Brussels, is run. Uh, they are basically American colonies. Uh, in, the, in terms of the European Commission, is uh, wow. I had the how can I say, a displeasure, in fact, of covering the European Commission for a long time. I, I used to, Brussels was one of my bases in Europe for a long time. Whenever I came came back from the Middle East or from Asia, I'll, I'll come here, I'll go to London and Brussels. So uh, now with Ursula, I call her von der Lugen. Lugen is lying in Germany. Comes from that uh, very famous uh, term in, uh, in, in Germany, Lugenpresse, uh, the lying press which applies to American press as well eh? and applies to Western press in general. So von der Lugen, von der Leyen, is uh, the absolutely perfect American fifth colonist implanted at the heart of the uh, mechanism of decisions of uh, the European Union. Uh, and the people around uh, Borrell, you know, the so-called specialist in foreign relations, which is an absolutely mediocre politician, uh, and uh, other, the people at the uh, European Parliament, etc. Et, et so it's uh, it's the whole thing is being run by Washington, and because they are vassals, and because they have the mentality of vassals, they can be even more uh, strident than the master, which was the case of that completely absurd 
uh, serial package of sanctions following the American sanctions that they imp without any sort of technical discussion in and they have very good technical people in Brussels who could point to the to, to the different uh, commissioners of the European Commission look we can't do this because it's going to be blowback uh, look at the numbers blah 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 now some of them are looking at the numbers and say oh man we're fucked but not too late. So what are you going to do? You're going to retract? No, because the the the, the level of Russophobia and hysteria this past two months uh, went uh, wow. It was intergalactic. In fact, that it's impossible to retract from that. Uh, and the loss of face, not only for them, but in terms of uh, the average uh, EU citizen. Paying taxes, which is which, which these people don't. These people who legislate in Brussels, they have fat salaries. They pay no taxes, and they retire with full salaries without paying taxes. So it's the best job in the world. And you rule unelected over people who pay taxes and actually bother to vote in uh, national elections, which is what's happening in France nowadays. And uh, it was very interesting because I. I before I came back to Paris, I was talking. I was in Normandy talking to people in Normandy, and they were saying, "Look, we are electing a guy who only cares about uh, the Americans and uh, Brussels, and he doesn't care about France," which is absolutely true. Uh, in in, uh, in everyday life, Macron is not uh, minimally interested in uh, the plight of. Uh, people who work in the health system here in France, who used to be one of the best in the world and now is collapsing fast and is going to be privatized. He doesn't care about the, the plight of fishermen in Normandy, for instance. No. It, 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 uh, he is a, a transnational plutocracy messenger, uh, strategically positioned in uh, the second most important country in the, in the European Union. And now, according to Macron himself, the most important because Considering that Germany is acephalous, has no leadership at the moment, Macron is seeing himself as the leader of, uh, of Europe. And what Europe? A, a completely uh, discombobulated, <laughs> to call a Tibetan term, Europe, totally divided. Now we see in the case of gas, um, with the, um, in different parts of, of, of the European Union, uh, extreme right-wing movements or the right-wing itself on the rise everywhere. Uh, an absolute uh, abyss between the 1% European version against the 99%, which is basically the dwindling middle classes and the working classes all across the, the EU. So, uh, and, and Brussels, are, are they uh, worried about that? Of course not. They are worried about Russophobia, demonizing Russia, uh, coming up with a package of sanctions that, that make no economic sense, destroying their national economies, which is what Draghi, Prime Minister Draghi, is doing in Italy. Mm -hmm. And if you talk to the extremely small fringe of uh, very well-informed academics in Italy, for instance, they are all horrified, but they say, look, nobody listens to us. The country is completely zombified by exactly this uh, netflix style 24 7 campaign of mm. Rus including russophobia and right. passing laws that go against the national interest 
So, so, so this is what we have here at, at the moment. I, I would say that compared to the US, the situation here in Europe is even worse because the, it's cool. everything that was kept artificially together since the, let's say, the invention of the European Union now is falling apart. And the policies, if we can call them policies, are not being dictated by Germany or France. They are dictated by Poland and the three Baltics. We call them the three Bs. Hmm. Those, uh, you know, I, I, those midgets over there in the Baltics that, uh, because they are Russophobes and they were part of the Russian right. Empire in the past, and Poland, as uh, Poland, they have a tremendous inferiority complex in historical terms. These are the people who are dictating policy in Brussels. And the people at the European Union and the European Commission with von der, uh, der, von der Leyen von der Lugin, they follow them. It's completely crazy. And obviously, what I'm telling you now, Danny, cannot be discussed here openly. If, if you start this discussion here, you, you are immediately qualified as a conspiracy theorist, uh, an mm. agent of Putin, agent of disinformation, right. you name it, you know. But you can discuss it in Turkey. <laughs> How extraordinary is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it is it is it is quite the scene. And and what you were discussing, I mean, it just made me think how the United States in particular, this whole this whole scenario that's been unfolding, this these developments around Russia during the military operation, just feels like the US just uh, exerting this Washington consensus and sort of just exporting the consequences onto Europe. And in, uh, yes. in Europe is bowing down like good puppets and yes. doing exactly uh, what the U.S. wants, but ultimately what will just uh, completely and utterly and already is just destroying the uh, the economic base of those societies. It's just, it is quite astounding to see. And then you have, on the other hand, you have Russia and China just on these opposite trajectories, right? And uh, Right as this operation was kicking off, Russia and China published a statement about how firm their friendship is. Mm -hmm. What is the significance of that here? Right? What is the significance of the Russian military operation in terms of this Russia, this military operation, and this new world order that's emerging? Like, how is this partnership going to lead the way? You've you've spoken on some aspects, so maybe you yes. could expand on on it because it's so important. Because in the West, here in the U.S., especially, this is seen as a huge threat. And you saw the U.S. Uh, administration, Blinken, all of them saying China needs to hold Russia accountable, right? <laughs> After the U.S. has been uh, basically militarily encircling China, uh, trying to conduct its own kind of economic warfare, even more, I think, pathetic than how it's uh, handling the Russia situation. Uh, but after all of this aggression and hubris and just antagonism, it's the U.S. saying, China, go get your go get your friend over here. Stop stop with all of this. <laughs> you know, like what? So, could you explain how the Russia-China partnership uh, really factors into all of this? Wow, we could uh, we could go on for hours on this one, Danny. Uh, it's been the focus of my work for over the for the for the past ten years, at least, if not more, uh, since the start of the the New Silk Roads in. Uh, 2013, I've been covering uh, the New Silk Roads full-time on a weekly basis, including many trips, uh, China, uh, Central Asia, Pakistan, uh, Laos, and uh, <clears throat> Southeast Asia. 
and it's uh, it's imp it's impossible for an average Westerner, an American, or even a relatively well-informed European uh, here in France or in Germany or in Italy, to to understand the the particularities and uh, the extremely nuanced relationship between Xi Jinping and Putin and the Chinese leadership and the Russian leadership because something this is something they have been developing for years at, at the highest level not only be, between the leaders but by their uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs by their academics by their research centers by the interactions between some of their best intellectuals uh, of course, there, there is some resistance on both sides. There is some resistance in some sectors of the Russian intelligentsia because they fear that uh, Russia would be the minor partner in a relationship with China. And there are some there are there is some resistance in less, but there is in some uh, Chinese uh, uh, centers of uh, in excellence, let's put it this way because they they might think that russia might drag them down because russia is much more powerful in confrontational terms against the us than china really is and at the same time the chinese know that they are next that the focus at the moment by this uh, toxic mix of neocons and neoliberals humanitarian imperialists disguised as neoliberals uh china is next they are starting with Russia, and the ultimate threat is China. So this, they take this into consideration as well. Uh, Operation Z, uh, the liniments of what would happen, of course, Putin and Xi had already discussed between them. And uh, Wang Yi and Lavrov had already discussed between them, of course. Not the exact date where we would stop. Well, it would start, sorry. But uh, what might happen, because uh, the Russians were not getting any response from the Americans when they started, okay, let's have a discussion about yeah. indivisibility of security. And absolutely nothing happened. Not and the Russians already knew that nothing would happen. So yeah. they had to do it because they were already looking, uh, when you are a good chess player, you're already looking five moves ahead. Okay. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, what if they don't do anything? Well, we have a series of scenarios. One of them is uh, we're going to pacify Donbass. Uh, the problem is they had to do it the worst uh, possible way because Russian intelligence found out that the American NATO plan was to launch, a, was to instrumentalize the Ukrainian forces based on the border of Donbass to launch a blitzkrieg, which could turn into a genocide. Mm -hmm. And this was, they had to have 100% certainty. And they did before the, the, the start of Operation Z. There were, the difference were dates. Uh, the SVR, Russian Foreign Intel, they had three dates. Look, the, the, Blitzkrieg, the Blitzkrieg could start end of February, uh, mid-February, end of February, or the first two weeks in March. So in the end, Putin decided not to gamble and not to, okay, let's start this uh, as soon as possible. And uh, the mechanism was there because the same information was uh, shared by the Donetsk and Luhansk uh, leadership. They knew it. And that's why they uh, addressed Moscow. Look, 
can you support us? And can you recognize that we are two independent people's republics? And that's what happened. The Kremlin recognized them as two independent people's republics. They asked for help because they said, look, we're going to be invaded. And that's that was the beginning of Operation Z. Of course, none of these uh, technicalities and details is explained to Western audiences. So it's impossible for anybody in the US, Canada, or the whole NATO stand space to put the whole thing in context. Because if you don't know what happened in February, it's impossible to understand why Operation Z is deploying. And if you don't know what happened in Donbass for the past eight years, even worse, yeah. because this was a, re a Russian reaction to what was going on in Donbass. In my own case, I saw it by myself when I went there in 2015. People living in bunkers and being, being shelled all the time by Ukrainian forces. But very, very few people in the world knew, outside from Russians, knew about that or know about that. And that's the problem because the, the absence of contextualization about everything that is going on uh, le le leads us to the... Uh, the French called it pensée unique, uh, unique thought, which is a great, it sounds great in French, but not very good in English. So you only think under these terms, Putin is crazy and he lost an illegal invasion. He's killing people. And there's nothing else because there's no context. He snapped. And he just, he snapped. He just oh, he's evil and he's snapped. <laughs> so no, no context. And the context is extremely complicated. First to understand and, um, immediately after to, to explain to people who are not familiar with the history of russia the history of ukraine the history of this whole region uh, the complexity of the black sea for instance the question of crimea all that it's very very complex and it, but from the point of view of uh, the toxic marriage neocons neoliberals it's very easy you reduce this to a formula the new hitler it, yeah. And it was always, it, as, as you know, Danny, and everybody watching us, you all know it's always the new Hitler, right? Right. <laughs> Plenty. I mean, what? Saddam Hussein, Muammar right. Gaddafi. Everyone's the new, you know, every everyone that is a target of war is yes. the new Hitler. Every leader exactly. that is a target of war is a new Hitler. Well, you know, we have, we have only a few more minutes. Uh, okay. I definitely want to get one last question in here. But while everyone is here, keep liking this stream subscribing to the channel and of course uh i'm an independent journalist so demonetization is ridiculous right now uh please do subscribe at patreon.com slash danny haifong to support this work but last question pepe yes where do you think this is going because i've been talking on this channel a lot about this new cold war right and how the u.s and of course it's european puppets and other uh, allies have been sort of uh, creating a very hostile situation uh, with Russia, China, and of course, all of its allies. Yes. And now we have this operation, this military operation that Russia felt compelled to engage in, in order uh, to rectify historic wrongs. Where is it? Where do you think this is going in terms of, uh, you've talked a lot about, of course, de-dollarization, but in terms of the broad landscape, uh, where do you think this this is going to go? Because some are predicting this will just dr dr uh, go on and on and on and on in order to try to starve Russia. That's been a popular theory. But what what would you say in terms of how you've synthesized uh, the ongoing developments of where this where this may go in the coming weeks, months, and, and longer? 
Well, what the Americans want is a long war, infinite, uh, another derivation of the long war. Remember, 20 years ago, uh, an infinite war dragging Russia down, a sort of Afghanistan 2.0 on mega steroids and, and mega lots of uh, weapons, which are, are still flowing. But instead of having a jihad international like we had in Afghanistan in the 1980s, we're going to have a neo-Nazi international, sort of with administration and management by NATO instructors, just like the 400 who are holed up at uh, bowels of Azovstal in Mariupol. What the Russians want is something very, very simple. First of all, uh, clean up in terms of demilitarize and denazify Donbass, Luhansk, and the environs as well. And all these areas will never be part of Ukraine. Forget it. Ukraine will never have access to the Sea of Azov. It's over. And depending on phase three, we are at the beginning of phase two, Ukraine will never have access to the Black Sea as well. So this is very, very, in geopolitical terms, this is a bombshell. And this is where we're going in the next weeks and months. So we're going to have a different map with a different rump Ukraine, probably. Uh, a very, very strong Novorossiya, including the Sea of Azov and the Black Sea. Uh, referendum in these areas where they will decide what, 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 what do they want to be. Do they want to be independent republics? Do they want to be a confederation? Do they want to be annexed to the Russian Federation? So they... The locals will decide. It's not Moscow that's going to decide. It's the locals that are going to decide in all these places, including Mariupol, Kherson, etc. And of course, the west of Ukraine is a mystery. Maybe it will be annexed by Poland. Who knows? Maybe the Russians will allow Poland to annex some of it. Maybe the Russians will say, no, it's a red line. There's going to be a demilitarized zone as well. And if you send somebody here, we're going to send Zircons and Sarmats against the centers of decision, which is what they are saying again and again. And Putin today, Danny, said the same thing. If you try, any, any of you try to intervene in what's going on in Ukraine, hmm. we're going to hit you. And we're going to hit you hard. Yeah. It's hard. And this, you, you don't, Russians don't do this kind of... Uh, uh, it's not even a threat. It's it's something that they already said many, many times. Look, right. we already told you many times, this is an internal problem between Russia and Ukraine, which are brothers, essentially. Mm -hmm. Look at our history, if you know anything about our history. If there is a NATO intervention or American intervention, we're going after the centers of decision. So everybody in Washington or in Brussels knows about it. And they keep playing, of course, around it or trying to find... a. a a third way, fourth way that doesn't exist. So, so this is the, let's say, the local uh, scenario. After that, it gets much more complicated because if NATO, if the Americans, NATO response, refuse uh, serious discussion about indivisibility of security, if they have, for instance, Finland and Sweden entering NATO, just to give you an example, this means the end of a known nuclear status for the Baltics. So there are going to be Russian weapons pointing at the three Baltics plus Finland and Sweden. Yeah. There's no question about that. Same thing about Romania and Poland. 
if the Americans decide that they're going to keep bases in Romania, Poland, and have missiles over there, the Russians are going to point nuclear missiles against Romania and Poland. So, so, so this thing could degenerate really fast, unless somebody, which we still don't know, uh, uh, Deus ex machina uh, in Washington, okay, let's sit down and discuss with the Russians, because nobody wants World War III here. Right. But the problem is the neocons want World War III. And we are hostages of the, these kind, these these people. Uh, like I wish Gore Vidal was alive today to say, but these people, they're this guy. At the, when he was alive, remember he was saying these people are disgusting. And he knew Gore Vidal knew everybody, and he knew all, especially the archivists, as we say in France. You know, mm -hmm. the nouveau riche. Uh, you know, the guy who are you know ah, come from the middle of nowhere, but he's in Washington, the seat of power, Western civilization, all that crap. You know. But and the problem is these people make policy and we all have to pay for it all across the world. So this is the big geopolitical picture. Economically, we are already going to post-globalization. The world is going to be divided into two uh, monetary financial camps. We, we still don't know how. We still don't know where is going to be the Fisher line, the new Iron Curtain, but it's inevitable. And that depends, of course, on the emergence of this new uh, financial monetary system across Eurasia and to go into other parts of uh, the global south, Africa, and maybe some parts of Latin America as well. So, uh, yes, it's a new Iron Curtain. Uh, Patrushev, in an interview this week, and Lavrov, in an interview earlier this week, they all, they all said on the record, yes, it is a new Cold War. We all know it is a new Cold War. We still don't know the details like we did ab uh, about the previous Cold War, where there was, a, it's incredible, there was a sort of mutual respect. I, I, I am a son of the Cold War. I was born in 54. So I followed this, this whole thing closely. And there was a mutual respect between the US and the USSR, which doesn't exist now, no. between the, especially the US and Russia and the US and China. Zero right. respect, zero diplomacy. Diplomacy today is package of sanctions. They don't even bother to sit down at the same table to talk. Yeah. So, so that's where we are. It's, it's. Uh, uh, I, I wish I wouldn't be so nihilistic, but uh, I think it's a pretty realistic uh, take on what's really going on now. And that's why you see people like Amir Scheimer talking about the possibility of World War Three. Because it is serious, because it's yeah. there. And it's not a localized nuclear exchange. No. Uh, Putin already said, once again, this war is going to be the last one, if it happens. That's where we are. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's... Uh, I mean, it, and it's been building up for quite some time. Yes. You know, you and all of your coverage, uh, the work that I've been doing, you know, over the past 10 years or so. Yes. I mean, this is... This has been, been building, building up. It was building it's, up little by little, but we never imagine we could never imagine that it, that it would snap right. so fast. Huh? Right, like, like the cliff. You know, yes, there exactly. was there was kind of like a climb up the cliff, and now yes. uh, yeah. the world is teetering on the edge. And uh, as you said, it's the neocons, it's the U.S. hegemonists, it's that these are the forces that are pushing it. And the unfortunate thing, and I think that's why it's so important to follow people like yourself work here and work elsewhere is that there's very few who are willing to challenge the narrative that it is in fact China and Russia and anyone who's associated with them politically yeah. 
that are the problem, right? And that's no, we that's are we are we are very few. Uh, you know, we are very few globally, and not only uh, in the English speaking world, but in, in other languages as well. And 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 there's the language problem as well. Uh, there, there are fabulous analysts, for instance, in Pakistan, in Iran, in Central Asia, but they are not heard internationally. Yeah. Terrible, yeah. absolutely terrible. And they have a very sophisticated view of international relations that is completely different from the NATO stance here. But they are too isolated. In Africa, same thing. Latin America, the same thing. So uh, we need yeah. to get together. Definitely. <laughs> that's why, we, yeah, we need to build that international, those international connections. Solid, yeah. it's, it's, that's how it's going to happen. Uh, that's how we're going to really shift things is by, by being more connected, especially in the sphere that we... Just happen to sit. I know you're traveling all the time, but we're, you know, that we happen to sit in um, right now in the West. It's it's so important. But Pepe, it's been really good. I'm going to stay on for another half hour. I know you have to go. My pleasure. Uh, could you just uh, give a plug about where people can find your work? That's a that's a very good point. Thank you, Danny, for that. Because yeah. uh, uh, okay, a lot of people know that I am at war with Asia Times, so I don't know if I will still write for them. The problem is most of my work for the past 20 years is there. Hmm. So including everything that they lost, they lost my archives. So I was my own initiative. I started to publish some of my archives on ebooks. So hmm. if you go to the web, Asia Times website, you're going to see four ebooks. One of them is about Iran, a reportage in Iran and in and out of Iran. Uh, another one is about Russia, China, and U.S. This could be particularly interesting for a lot of you because it tracks from 2017 to 2020. So it's essential to understand what happened in the what's happening now in the during the Biden years. It, it tracks basically the Trump years, Russia, China, and Iran. And two others are on the forever wars. Afghanistan and Iraq, mostly reportage in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and in and out as well. So, so my work, most of it is still there. Uh, if you want to go back to the what I wrote like 15, 20 years ago, you have to go to webarchive.org. Can you believe it? To find and it's a nightmare, but you will eventually find it. Nowadays, I write for the Cradle, based in Beirut, uh, Strategic Culture, based in Moscow. Uh, occasionally on consortium news based in mm -hmm. washington and republished by a lot of a lot of people uh, in the us zero hedge republishes a lot of stuff which is very very funny uh, the <laughs> uns review republishing my work uh global research in canada so right. easy to find yeah well definitely check out pepe more thanks so much for coming on i'll be sticking around for another half hour we'll definitely be talking again in my pleasure future, Danny. Sure. yes we'll talk again definitely bye-bye <laughs> uh so that was a great conversation please do continue to stick around i'm going to make uh, have some commentary for probably another 20 30 minutes or so continue to like this stream continue to subscribe to this channel and uh, I, you know, my birthday is coming up May 7th. I have goals. Uh, journalism has become a lot harder, independent journalism to, to be able to do this work. Uh, I want to have at least 15 more subscribers on my Patreon before May 7th. If you could help me do that at patreon.com slash Danny Haifang, that would be incredible because this is uh, this situation is that 
there is a lot of repression right now, a lot of censorship. We talked about it with Pepe. I've been talking about it here on this channel. It is very real and it isn't always so overt. So taking, kicking people off of accounts, off of social media platforms, YouTube, that's one way. The other way is by slowing the channel's ability to be seen, reducing its visibility in the algorithm. And that has been something that I've been experiencing for many years now since Rush, the Russiagate madness. And so I'm just putting out a plug right now before I get into the content. Please do uh, subscribe at patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. I appreciate all of the super chats. Yes, but I'm also in a battle with YouTube. I cannot get this pin. I have to get this pin. It has not been sent to me. Um, I, I can't seem to get it sent to me by mail. And so they're holding all the money right now. So and it's not much, you know, this channel has been, again, it has been throttled. So patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. That's how you support this work. I'm going to have more conversations with people like Pepe. Definitely in the future, Pepe Escobar, incredible journalist. Uh, he has done so much great work. But with that said, I, I want to move on now to Elon Musk. I just need to make some comments about this because there's so much commentary on it. Elon Musk is buying Twitter uh, at around some something like $44 billion, right? And there's a lot of feelings about this. But now you have the Western media, the liberal corporate media, especially uh, just going ballistic, right? And mind you, this is a problem, okay? It's not, it, it's not a problem in the way that the Western media and the capitalist elites who are in competition with people like must see it. It's not uh, the neocons and neoliberals. It's not how they see it, right? That's not the, the – their. I'll get to their problem. The real problem with this is that it's just a further consolidation of imperialism. It's like Vladimir Lenin 101, imperialism, the highest age of capitalism. You have a, a huge magnate like Elon Musk using both his capital and also the financing he gets from the banks, right? Morgan Stanley, and I believe there's five others getting in on the mix in order to finance this merger, really this kind of takeover. This is just imperialism doing what imperialism does and it's the banks that actually rule here because elon musk would never self-finance the complete uh, purchase of a, a capital entity right this is purchasing capital it's not like it's not like going to the grocery store i'm going to get some apples and chicken no this is capital this is something that produces profit this is something uh, so he's purchasing this uh, with the help of the banks and it's a further consolidation of social media so of course it's a problem. Further privatization, of course, that's a problem. But that's not that. Even when the mainstream media, the New York Times, is mentioning this, they really are concerned more so about the so-called free speech absolutism. Now, I don't believe anything that comes out of Elon Musk's mouth because he has demonstrated just a horrific and horrendous record around workers' rights, super exploitation of workers, his just crass sort of a way of talking about things where he says, well, I'll coup whoever we want. You have Latin American countries nationalizing resources like lithium, such as Bolivia, and you have Elon Musk, right, openly calling for coups against those countries. I mean, I, who can trust someone like Elon Musk? But there are a lot of people who have this fanatic idealization of the guy. But nonetheless, the point is, is that the way that the Western media is portraying this is it's Elon Musk who's going to now uh, further problematize, make further 
uh, sort of the destruction of free speech through his purchase of Twitter. And what's ironic about this is that the Western media has actually been at the forefront of making social media platforms channels for censorship and surveillance in ways that we have never seen in history because this is all these are all new developments. So you have U.S. intelligence, you have Western intelligence, you have big banks, you have military, con you have the whole consortium of ruling class interests using social media in partnership with the banks and the shareholders and the uh, part owners, right? Uh, basically doing the dirty work of the war machine, taking accounts off. How many thousands of accounts have been deleted just because they say positive things about Venezuela, Nicaragua, China, Russia, whatever uh, the target country is, Iran, the state-affiliated media label, which suppresses people further in the algorithms, shadow banning, all of this, suspending people like Pepe Escobar. I mean, all of this has been supported, not enthusiastically supported by the Western media, the liberal corporate media, the neocons, all of them have been enthusiastically pushing this, facilitating this. And now they're complaining about Elon Musk. It's ironic that they're complaining about Elon Musk because they're actually the ones who paved this road to hell that uh, the overall media landscape has been on for ordinary people for a long time, for decades, right? We can trace all of this back to the 1996 Telecommunications Act, which consolidated the media even further, right? So you had Bill, the Bill Clinton administration, a Democrat, basically eliminating any restrictions to media mergers, corporate media. And this had ripple effects across television media, across radio, uh, across all sorts of different ways in which uh, media comes together. And so that's why you have this extreme scenario, right, of just a few corporations. It it's exists in the corporate media overall with six corporations owning 90% of it, five or six, and it exists in all of these various sectors. In social media, you only have a handful or less of companies sort of sharing uh, the overall uh, profits that are being made off the super exploitation of us, right? And so the Western media is hypocritical, and we have to point that out because now they have problems where uh, for a long time they have had none with the way that Twitter and all these other social media platforms have operated to suppress dissenting voices, suppress anti-war voices, and to ultimately forward the agenda of, of the imperialists. That's what they are. That's what all of this is. It's this new age imperialism where now in this realm of technology, there is a lot going on in terms of trying to divide up the territory, so to speak, to use Leninist terms, right? Redividing capital in order to further consolidate it and ensure that fewer and fewer hands have control over it. That is the product of capitalist competition. That's what we're seeing here. And we need to be sure, of course, uh, the only, in my opinion, the only interesting thing here is the possibility that Elon Musk's very words create a political situation that people can continue to hold on to. This idealization of Elon Musk is a problem, though, because he the only good thing he does, right, is by engaging in fair partnerships in China. That's the only good thing, in my opinion, that he does, because it's true. Uh, if it wasn't for uh, 
uh, a lot of the uh, ways in which his, his corporation has spearheaded uh, that industry and in renewables, especially electric vehicles, that, you know, uh, for all of the other flaws with this, because there's a lot of it, right? There's a lot of super exploitation that goes into it, but he does engage in, in fair arrangements with uh, China in order to ensure that China has access to that market so they can actually address climate change in a manner. And, and that's going to continue to change, though, as China becomes more and more independent, because China doesn't say, oh, yeah, we're just going to buy cars from you forever. We're going to buy things from you forever from the West or anywhere else. China says, no, we're only, we're doing this so that we can build up the capacity to do it ourselves. And that's what's happening. And so the I think the big point here, though, is that we should not idealize Elon Musk as some free speech absolutist. You can't believe the words that come out of capitalist mouths, especially people as smarmy as Elon Musk, right? At Jeffrey Epstein, Black Book, Elon Musk, right? This guy who has a long record of exploitation comes from apartheid, South Africa in his lineage. He is a capitalist through and through. But nonetheless, just by pointing out Twitter's errors, there is an opportunity to push forward, right? This uh, understanding that Twitter has been engaging in some ruthless censorship to basically take what should be a public utility and make it into really a prison and then also really just a weapon for a prison for us and a weapon for the for big capital, right? In all spheres, including the military industrial complex. So I just want to say that right? Because there's a lot of feelings about this and it becomes a big news story, right? It becomes this huge news story, despite all the other things that are happening. You have Joe Biden, right? Joe Biden just pardoned some sleazy secret service agent, some corrupt secret service agent, but he didn't pardon any of the political prisoners still in the United States. Julian Assange being one who hasn't been extradited, but he is a political prisoner of the United States if it weren't for the U.S., there would be, uh, uh, there would be no uh, uh, Julian Assange imprisonment, right? He wouldn't be facing what he's facing, extradition, if it weren't for the U.S. So Julian Assange being one, but we also have to think about people like Mumi Abu-Jamal, Sunyata Kohli, Leonard Peltier, dozens of others who remain behind prison walls for their political activity for their commitment to liberation, black liberation, indigenous liberation uh, over the last half century plus, right? They, they, they are, there are still many people like Mumia Abu-Jamal rotting in prisons that Joe Biden refuses to pardon. Despite the fact that there's overwhelming evidence in almost every one of these cases, if not all of them, that the charges were trumped up against them, that the court system, the intelligence agencies like the FBI through their counterintelligence program were under were pursuing a coordinated campaign to imprison activists such as Mumia Abu-Jamal at that time. And uh, that campaign continues into today because every time they go up for parole, these police unions and their friends in intelligence come together and pressure the courts, the state courts especially, to abide by their diktats, which is to kill these activists and show people an example of what will happen to you if you do the wrong thing, which the wrong thing here, quote unquote, is defined as standing up for liberation, 
fighting for your people, for for the, the exploited, for the oppressed, right? Standing up to racism, capitalism, imperialism, exploitation, and saying no more, we're going to build something else, and we're going to build the rudiments of that in the Black Panther Party, the American Indian Movement, right? That is what is at stake here. And that's why Joe Biden won't pardon them because he is a mass incarcerator in chief. He is crime bill Joe Biden. And he uh, more so than perhaps anyone else embodies uh, this uh, mass incarceration state, this mass incarceration state that has developed over generations, which is an internal reflection of the military state that has been built up astronomically since the Vietnam War. But of course, we know that the United States has been a warfare state since the very beginning. People may not know that the United States' Department of quote-unquote defense was the Department of War for so long. <laughs> that only changed uh, during these this Cold War right? that the U.S. launched, uh, which required a public relations switch a, a, a sort of shift because there was concern that some of the ways of course that the u.s conducted war would be seen as racist and would be seen as imperialist and that would then degrade the u.s's standing in the overall international situation where the u.s was jockeying with the soviet union and other socialist countries for influence and ultimately for domination so it's a department of war, and that is uh, what the censorship is all about. That is what the continued imprisonment is all about. These political prisoners are prisoners of war. They're prisoners of the war that happens right here in the United States on working people, on oppressed people each and every day. It's so important that we continue to make that connection between the sanctions on Russia and the blowback as we have been doing here because... There needs to be more connections made between how domestic politics, the domestic developments that we see, whether it's around police brutality or economic exploitation and the like, how these developments uh, transpire and develop ultimately reflect what the U.S. is doing abroad. Right? Martin Luther King Jr. said the bombs that explode uh, abroad come right back home. Uh, and explode the bombs dropped abroad come right back home and explode uh, in, you know uh, on, on working people and so that's that's what's happening right now and the russia situation is just the i think the most direct way to link those two things because the united states continues to pump weapons into ukraine enforce these suicidal sanctions europe the same and it's coming back to working people in terms of uh, really damaging economic conditions, incredible price hikes. I mean, the inflation is through the roof. People do not know how they're going to make it. Uh, they, they, there's much more instability than ever, even among people who are higher earners among working people than, say, others. But, I mean, it is a real dire situation right now. And so while Pepe Escobar had... He called it nihilism, but I think this is just realistic, a realistic analysis, a materialist analysis of the situation. And that analysis, that materialist analysis now needs to be put into action. Now we need to continue to spread the word 
get out the word, educate our communities, build organizations, all of that in order to move to this new phase, join in on this decoupling from imperialism that's happening quite organically, not in some sort of, this is uh, a, some sort of political movement, but it really is an objective phenomenon that we can join into so long as we're not dragged down by bourgeois politics, especially in the form of the Democratic Party. That is what is, I think, the Achilles heel of the entire quote-unquote progressive and left movement. It's the Democratic Party still being seen in this lens of, okay, how do we maneuver? How do we reform it? How do we make the best of this? Even if there is much less than ever, and I think to a lesser extent than ever, faith that the Democratic Party will actually change things. But no, there's still this, I think, hope that if you can fight the Democrats the right way, if you can maneuver around them the right way, support the right people, creates a certain kind of conflict in the Democratic Party that you're going to get what you want. The Democratic Party has put up the levers, the walls that it needs to ensure that that conflict is likely not to transpire. At least that's my opinion, right? I had some hopes in 2016, less so in 2020, that this kind of new trend, right? The Sandernistas, as we called them, at Black Agenda Report, this new trend of sort of social democratic thinking and the, you know universal health care and uh, student loan relief, all of that stuff coming to the fore, right? Green New Deal, that that could create a split in the Democratic Party. Now, I don't believe that that's going to happen. It's going to happen like that. I think the split will only occur when those uh, a significant number of so-called Sandernistas, uh, whatever, squad uh, sort of followers, those folks decouple themselves from the Democrats and see that this is just not the party for them. And that, I think that's the only way that that split really occurs because the individuals, right, the Sanderses, the AOCs, the Elon Omars, they're not going to break from the Democrats and they will defend the Democrats in key ways to ensure that the movement remains weak. And that's not necessarily some kind of agenda that they're conspiring. That's just the nature, the character of their role, that they have chosen a particular career and they have succeeded in that particular career. And now they are going to try to hold on to that success within the already existing political structure. But for those of us who don't have a stake in that, we, we have what do we have a stake in uh, when it comes to seeing AOCs and Elon Omar's? No, we don't have a stake in that because we already know that the policies aren't changing. And uh, ultimately, we don't get garner any benefits from that. So we have to address this Democratic Party Achilles heel if we're going to address questions like what we spoke today of today. If we're going to address the Elon Musk, the monopolization of social media, the Democratic Party is not on our side on this. It, even if they don't like Elon Musk in a lot of ways, they surely uh, will continue to champion that social media be this, these big tech corporations be a lever of repression 
which only then facilitates more Elon Musk situations, right? Because it creates this further creep uh, toward these social media companies being further and further, quote unquote, private. They're already private, but quote unquote privatized, but really moving further and further away from any notion of a public utility, which is what they are and which they should be. But nonetheless, right, that's that's what they're doing. Or if we're talking about political prisoners, right, the Democrats have no interest in freeing Mumia Abu-Jamal, in ensuring that Assad Shakur's head is not up for bounty, right? It was Bob Menendez that put that into place um, in New Jersey, right? And it's, of course, the federal government, um, the rest of the federal government, the FBI, they're all on board with the Assad Shakur bounty Sunni Adekoli, all of these political prisoners continue to run in prison after successive Democratic Party administrations. So we can just go down the line on issue after issue after issue. And then you have what we talked about with Pepe Escobar today, this new Cold War, this division of the world between states that are attempting to become more monetarily, economically, financially, whatever you want to call it, and politically independent of u.s hegemony you have those states led by russia and china and then you have the united states led by successive democratic party administrations escalating hostilities toward those countries in order to maintain dollar imperialism in order to maintain political and military hegemony that is the landscape and successive democratic administrations with obama injecting steroids into this project of hostility uh, that should tell us that the democrats have no interest in peace and not only this they are the war party and they have the capacity by mobilizing so-called progressives to support what could be one of the most disastrous uh, developments in human history which would be an open confrontation conflict between the U.S., its allies, and China, Russia, and its allies. That would create a sort of humanity uh, doomsday scenario, which none of us want to see, which is why we need to become independent of the Democratic Party to get there, because the Democrats have no interest. I have an AOC, Omar, whatever, whoever, Rashida Tlaib, they, they don't say or do anything to make the situation better. Where is their opposition to arms, to pumping Ukraine with arms? Uh, Bernie Sanders is probably supporting this. I don't know for a fact, but he was supporting sanctions 100%, but continue to militarize Ukraine uh, is being seen by people like Ro Khanna as necessary to defend Ukraine from Russia and that the war would be over in a day if we didn't give those weapons and Ukrainians would suffer, right? Weaponizing the so-called suffering of Ukrainians in order to justify these massive arms shipments and these uh, military agreements uh, with Ukraine that just cost us more and, and continues this dissent for the United States as essentially an economic basket case because you can't keep pumping hundreds of millions, billions of dollars worth in addition to the $800 billion U.S. military budget and then also levy these intense sanctions and have Europe pay the most price for it. But really, the whole world economy is paying the price and expect that there's going to be good outcomes there. But nonetheless, here we are. It's a dangerous situation, a really dangerous one. But 
Uh, what I am grateful for is that, you know, I think there's a growing community of people worldwide who are opposed to this, that the majority of the world's population is opposed to all of these things, but especially, right, the U.S. NATO, in uh, uh, the U.S. Like, instigated crises and conflicts that we see around the world. And so it really is just a matter of getting organized, getting educated, and joining in on this fight, joining in to this fight for peace, for self-determination, and for then liberation from the scourge of imperialism. That's that's the struggle that we are in. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm certainly grateful to be in it uh, with all of you. But with that said, you know, keep liking this stream. Keep liking this video even after I have departed. Make sure you subscribe to the channel. As I, as I said, I'm looking to uh, buy May 7th, which is my birthday, another year on this earth. I'm very grateful for that. Looking for 15 more subscribers to my Patreon. I'm trying to continue to develop uh, my independent journalism and my work. And in order to do that, I need to be sustainable. And so I need my work to be sustainable. So if you can, please do subscribe at patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. You can see it right, uh, right here. You can see it uh, also in the description. The link is there. And there's also many other ways to support me if Patreon is not your thing. With that said, though, I think I'm going to depart. You know, this was a great stream. It was a great interview with Pepe Escobar. There's so much we could have talked about. I have to have him on again. And I will also have to um, uh, I will also have to have uh, so many others on. So so be on the lookout, you know, for future streams and work uh, by subscribing to this channel, liking the uh, liking uh, all of the videos and make sure that you hit the bell as well so you can get notified. I've been hearing YouTube has been notifying people later and later. So be sure to check in on the community posts because I've been publishing uh, just sort of notices about uh, uh, my streams and whatnot. So uh, with that said, thanks so much, everyone. Peace out. And uh, last plug, be sure to support my work right here at patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. Oh, man, I'm really bad with the camera. Patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. Take care. Peace out, comrades. Bye-bye.